Well, we're in the book of Titus, and uh, Titus was a letter, of course, written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, whom he had mentored, maybe even led to the Lord, who he'd left behind on an island called Crete to work with some churches there. This morning, the title of my message is Transforming Grace, and I've really been looking forward to this message and this part of the book of Titus. I like it all, and as you know, the primary theme that we've been looking at is why good works matter, why good works matter, and how we live them out in our daily lives in relationships, relationships with other people, but of course primarily in our relationship to the Lord, doing all things unto him to bring him honor and glory, whatever it is. Good works matter. The book of Titus makes it clear over and over and over, doing good deeds matters. However, as I've stressed many times, many times, what Paul is teaching and encouraging and exhorting about good works never undermines grace for a moment. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any of us should boast. So with that, we're going to be looking, a quick review, very quick review, and then we're going to be looking into chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, iPads, iPhones, or whatever you happen to use. You can turn to Titus chapter 2. We've looked at so far how Paul, in his letter to Titus, was giving him some advice or firm instruction, strong instruction, on some things that he needed to do to help get the church back on a positive track, to make some positive change in the church. Two things that we've seen very clearly are, first of all, he gave him some clear instructions about selecting leaders, the characteristics and the qualifications of leaders. I encouraged us to apply those characteristics and attributes to our own lives, not just to church leaders or church elders, but as we've said, we all lead in some capacity somewhere. And that phrase we've been using is, to somebody, you're the very best Christian they may ever know. And we need to demonstrate this same character in whatever position of leadership God has us in, whether it's in the home or the workplace and organizations, it doesn't matter. These leadership attributes and character traits are really laid out by Paul from the Lord to help us live and lead in a way that separates us from the world so that the people will know that there is something different about a Christian. And so he gave him that information about leaders, and then he addressed an issue that was a problem in the church. False teachers. False teachers undermining primarily grace. They were coming in in the area of legalism, especially those of the circumcision or the Jewish leaders. They wanted to add to the gospel message. And Paul is very, very blunt when he says, silence them, rebuke them. But he's also clear in saying that do it in such a way that they may be redeemed. You know, there are opportunities or situations where a teacher may, with all good conscience, be teaching something that's in error. We need to be instructed. You know, if if I'm teaching something and you think it's in error, please, I want you to come and talk to me and tell me So I don't walk in air and teach air. God does say that he's going to hold teachers a little more accountable than the rest, right? 
So help protect me from that accountability. But that's Paul. He says, don't let it go. Don't let it slide. Don't ignore it and hope it goes away. Silence it, rebuke it, and hopefully they can be redeemed. If not, he has some very strong words to describe them as being vile and evil, and nothing they do is good at all. So Paul goes on now in Titus chapter 2, and he demonstrates how the gospel can transform people in every situation, every stage of life, and every circumstance, quite frankly. Now, I'm going to read these first 10 verses, but I'm not going to spend much time on any of them because I want to really focus on verses 11 through 14, 15 today. But I would like you to look at, as I'm going through and listen, listen for what can be called purpose statements. In the midst of him explaining and and describing what a group of people could look like or should look like, you'll see the because or the why answered. And there's at least three distinct purpose statements in this section of Scripture. Give you a clue, verses 5, 8, and 10 especially. I'm going to read uh, in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. This is Paul writing to Titus. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, and to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose Though who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Or in some translations says that it's an adornment like jewelry on them. So as you look at these verses, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and then slaves, he describes character traits, attributes, ways to live that can apply to any or all of us at different stages of our lives. And it's interesting that he puts slaves in there because slavery would certainly indicate, regardless of circumstance, uh, just a, a little sidebar on the slave issue. Sometimes it's like, you mean God condones slavery? No, nowhere in there does he condone slavery, but he never directly attacks slavery. We have to understand our mindset versus the cultural mindset of that time and especially of the Jewish people. Amongst the Jewish people, work was a good thing. Amongst the Romans, work was a bad thing. If you were a Roman slave, you were looked upon entirely differently than if you were a Jewish slave. A Jewish slave may be as highly educated as anybody else in the country. It didn't matter. They were treated more like members of the family or of the household. In certain scriptures you'll see, and their whole household, meaning not only the immediate family, but the slaves. God is not condoning it, but he never attacks it. What he's really saying, and this is his whole point, 
you know what, no matter what your situation is, do the very best at what you are for the glory of God. Whether you're a farmer or a salesman or a carpenter, do the very best you can to the glory of God. If you have the worst boss that was ever created, do all you can to do the very best job to serve him for the glory of God. If you're a slave, do the very best you can for the glory of God. Why? Because whatever the situation is, people will look at you and they'll see you and they will see Jesus being represented through you if your character is like he describes here in any phase of life. You might be an older man. You might want to look at that. You older women, stay out of the wine. Now, if I was writing that, I'd have said, young men, stay sober-minded and stay sober too. I don't know why he picked on you older women. Might have been something about the culture. I don't know, obviously. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on any of those, but I encourage you to read them. Look at them. Maybe you want to even look up the words in some different translations to see how he's describing us. But basically, what you will see over and over and over, and not directly to the slaves, but what you will see is be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Don't let your passions or your lusts or emotions drive you. Be self-controlled or self-disciplined. And the only way that we can do that is by listening to the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in us. It's the only way. Otherwise, our flesh wins. Okay, verse 11. It says this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaches us to say no. What teaches us to say no? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you ever want to use a scripture just to support the Trinity, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God. He is the Son of God. Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. I want to focus on those, primarily those verses 11 through 14. I want to start by just going and looking at the word that's there, appeared. Grace appeared. It appeared amongst us. The grace of God that brings salvation appeared. The word appeared is the Greek word from which we get the English word epiphany. An epiphany. An epiphany appeared. What does epiphany mean? What does it mean when it's used in scriptures? Well, there's two definite uh, pictures that that same word is used to give for us. It tells us that the Greek word there conveys an idea of being made known. An epiphany makes something known. What does it make known? Well, it makes known, in this case, Jesus and God. Known. A couple of scriptures. In John 14, verse 9, it says, Jesus answered, and he's talking to Philip. He says, don't you know me, Philip? 
Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? There was an epiphany. The grace of God came and appeared and made known the Father. When we read the scriptures, when we learn about Jesus, what he's saying is he's revealing the Father to us. God the Son came to earth to reveal the Father, to make known to us the Father. So when we pray to our Heavenly Father, we can pray to someone that we can know intimately in so many ways because Jesus has revealed him to us. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the image of the Father, the firstborn over all creation. So when it says He has appeared, there has been an epiphany to make known to us God. The world might say, how can you know God? The easy answer is because Jesus revealed him to me. He showed me, he demonstrated in his life the Father to us. The kind of love that he demonstrated, that's how the Father loves us. The holiness, the righteousness, the sinless life, he demonstrated to us the Father. He revealed, and he also revealed himself. You know, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus was famous in the area of Galilee and Judea. He revealed himself. He demonstrated who he was. And in that verse it says, the grace of God brings salvation has appeared. The first appearance of Jesus was that appearance of the grace of God coming to earth. The grace of God. Also we see this word epiphany used in scripture. It carries with us the idea of light coming into the darkness. Light coming into the darkness. When grace appeared, light appeared. In John 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but in that case, the darkness did not understand it. When Jesus appeared, the grace of God appeared. The grace of God appeared for salvation to all men. The grace of God was demonstrated and appeared when Jesus came. Jesus was a demonstration of the grace of God. The light coming in the darkness, a dark world, a world that was totally controlled and dominated by the prince of darkness, Satan. The world was controlled by sin. And in came the light of God. The light entered into the world. The life entered into the world through Jesus Christ. And in John 8, verse 12, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Jesus came into the world, by grace, he literally turned the light on. The world was in darkness. Sin was dominant. The power of sin was dominant. The prince of the earth at that time, Satan, the prince of the earth, still darkness. But Jesus came as light, and he came into the light of the world. He came to give life to those who believe and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul describes this grace this way. He describes it as appearing to offer salvation to the world. It's all grace. We, we so, I don't want to say misunderstand, we so minimize the definition of grace. We sometimes only think of it as unmerited favor or something like that. And it's true, it is that, but it's a power that has a power aspect to it. 
This grace that came into the world, this light that came into the world was grace, the grace of God. Grace, when Jesus came into the world, grace was demonstrated. It was declared. It was announced. Um, It's not a secret. It's not a secret anymore. When grace came into the world, when Jesus came into the world, the light of life came into the world. Grace really is like saying, it's like God's great big welcome sign. You are welcome here. Grace through Jesus, the demonstration of his grace. I'm trying to decide how many rabbit trails I want to go on. I'm not totally lost. Yeah, that's how I feel sometimes. I want to use an illustration that I came across this week. It's not mine. I'm not this original. But I really like the illustration. It simplifies this so much in my mind. Imagine, if you would, for a moment that you are out in a pitch-dark night. There's no stars in the sky. There's no, no moon. It's caught, and you're in the middle of a dense forest. You're totally lost. There is no light. Fear is starting to consume you. And you're just stumbling through trying to figure out a way to get out of this situation you're in. And it looks hopeless and there is no way. But as you continue to walk, all of a sudden you see a glimmer of light. So you start walking towards the light. And as you get closer to the light, you realize it's the light on the porch of a little cabin. And it draws you to that light. The porch light is on. It's almost, again, like a welcoming sign to come, come towards the light. You're welcome here. The welcome mat is there. And you get up there and you step onto the porch and you start to feel so much relief. And then you reach and you can't open the door. And you discover there's no other way in the cabin than this door. And this door is thick and obviously it has a big lock because no matter what you do, you can't even make it wiggle when you pull on this door. The only way into that cabin, the only way into that place of warmth and safety and, and light is through that door. And the only way to get through that door is the key. But you don't hold the right key. Your key of good works won't open the door. Your key of self-righteousness will not open that door. There's only one key that will open the door. And that's the key of grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The only key that can open the door. You can stand there and kick and scream and holler, and you can rattle off all the reasons why you should get in, but the door won't open without the key of grace. Boy, we want that key. We want to enter in. The key of our good works really are worthless. In Ephesians 2, when I read this, or I said this just a little while ago, but it's so important to remember when I'm spending so much time stressing that good works matter. And this doesn't diminish the reality that good works matter, but good works can never diminish the importance of grace. And religion, legalism, anytime we start adding something about our performance or something we have to do, I don't care how good the works are, if we start adding that to salvation, we're diminishing grace, and it's a false gospel. 
And this is what Paul is really addressing in those false teachers, those Jewish guys. Hey, if you want to be a Christian, great. We're glad you believe in Jesus. That's great. But come on, you need to get circumcised if you really want to be saved. No. We sometimes have a tendency because of our mindset, because of our culture, this idea that we always have to do or perform to earn this recognition. Well, there's nothing you can do to earn recognition as a son or daughter of God. Just got to accept by grace, through faith, the truth of the gospel message. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. You just can't do it. You can't earn God's favor. You can't do enough good deeds. You're never righteous enough to get in on your own. Isaiah 64.6. I saw this verse yesterday afternoon, and I thought, boy, oh boy, I don't like that verse. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our, righteousness, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We will shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins will sweep us away. That's our situation without the key of grace, without Jesus, his death and resurrection. It doesn't matter how good your works are if you're not saved. They're filthy rags in God's eyes. You know, we, we get our reward in heaven. All the works that we've done that did not bring glory and honor to him, they don't count. It's the works that we do to bring him glory and honor that are important. The nice thing about God's grace, nice thing, listen to this if you're one of those people who likes to work and earn and somehow or other you bought into that lie that you somehow or other got to earn God's favor, the reality is it means you can stop worrying about being good enough. You don't have to ever worry about being good enough for, to get saved because you're never going to be good enough. God says this to you, I know you're not good enough, and you're never going to be good enough. That's why I sent someone who is good enough. I sent Jesus to take your place by grace, through faith. God's grace, when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we receive that grace, God forgives us, pardons us, justifies us, all in one broad sweep. It's amazing, the grace of God. This justification, I just want to spend a minute or two making sure we're clear. Justification, here's a legal description of it, really simple one. Guilty, but no penalty. Justification. You know, we deserve the penalty for sin. What was it? Death. Jesus took the penalty for us. Many of us are familiar with Romans 3.23, but I want to read that and just remind us of what follows, because sometimes we stop after verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it says, and are justified by his grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Justice had to be met. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross forgives our sins, pardons us, and justifies us before the Father. Guilty, 
but not condemned. Guilty, but the penalty's already been paid by someone else. And as we go on in this few verses, we see this grace is transformational. And this, again, is where Paul is attaching God's grace and expanding it beyond salvation, beyond even justification, but also into that word called sanctification. You know what? We're all in process, right? We're all in a process. You know, as soon as you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit moves in and the transformation process begins. You know, we know that we're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are new. However, it's a process that takes some time. You know, the effects of living in a fallen world where we all live, the effects of living in this fallen world have harmed all of us differently. It's impacted us, whether we understand it yet or not, whether we see it or not, whether we realize it or not, it has impacted us. There's different issues, different struggles with certain kinds of sin, dealing with past hurts, all of these things that exist in this fallen world we live in hinder us from living out the life that God wants for us. It hinders our ability to live out that life. I want to go back to my cabin. My cabin. We're back at the cabin. We discovered the key, the key of grace through Jesus Christ. We've opened the door and we've walked in, and there we are. And then we discover something. We look behind us and see we see all the crap that we tracked in with us. And it surprises some of us and frustrates some of us. Some of us think that the moment that God's grace opened the door, we are now saved, we're now his children, all of the bad stuff should just disappear real quickly, immediately, like right now, and not be a problem ever again. That's just not true. Sanctification and this transformation is a process that's going to take some time. It goes at different rates and different people. You and I all have different issues. There's different things that we struggle with. But we look behind and, and we see things that we think, God, can I even be saved? That's a great lie from the enemy. Things like bad temper, sexual temptation, lust, selfishness, bitterness, Envy, gossip, they keep popping up. Why? Because the process of transformation is ongoing. The Holy Spirit begins immediately salvation. The grace of God is working in our lives. Remember we've talked about this some time ago, a few weeks back. You know, the grace of God gives us the will or the, or the, the desire. It gives us the desire to change, and it gives us the will to do it. I can't do it on my own. I need God's grace. I can't get saved on my own. I need God's grace. I want to be this different person. It takes the grace of God working in our life, the Holy Spirit working in our life, and us responding to the Holy Spirit by God's grace. God knows you and I track some stuff in when we enter into his kingdom. He knows it, but he's got a solution. This purification process or sanctification is by grace. We need to cooperate. I Pastor Bob was teaching some of this this morning in adult Bible class. The grace of God makes anything possible. Any change in our life is possible. If you've ever said, I'll never change, or, or better yet, you probably said this, she'll never change. He'll never change. 
the grace of God in the life of a believer can change anything. It's transformational. It can take some time, but the Holy Spirit won't give up as long as we just cooperate. He knows the problem. That sanctification is that inward work process that's taking place to bring about a holiness, a changed life. It's something that should be demonstrated. It's something that should be seen. This is what Paul is saying. You'll know them. You know, you'll know them. You'll see the difference. Justification declares we're not under the penalty of sin. And the sanctification is removing the power of sin and its cause and effects from our life as we allow it to work. Verse 12 of Titus 2. It, meaning grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And then I paraphrased it a little bit. I messed with scripture. I confess. To say yes to what is right and to live a life self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. The grace of God will allow us to live a life here on earth yet that will bring glory and honor to God. The way I paraphrase it, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to what is right. The grace of God will do that in our lives. A pastor by the name of James Merritt put this this way. Grace doesn't give you license to live the way you want to live. It gives you the liberty to live the way you ought to live. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean you're free to live any way you want. It means now you are free to live the way God wants you to. Before, we're under the power of sin. We're no longer bound by that power of sin. And then he finishes up in verse 14 and 13. And I'm going to look at 14 first and 13 afterwards. In verse 14, it goes to who gave himself. He's talking about that first appearance of grace. When Jesus first came, the first time. It says when he came that first time, in verse 14, he gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify himself of people that are, various, are his very own, to do good works. He came to redeem us not only from the forgive, in the forgiveness area of our sin, but from the effects of sin. And grace came to purify us, to become this people that don't do good works grudgingly. We want to do good works. We want to do good deeds because the grace of God is active in our lives, giving us the desire and the will to do that. And the grace of God, he says, is going to appear again at his second coming. And when I first looked at it, I was thinking, there's the big motivator. There's the big motivator. But we shouldn't even need that as our motivator. We already have been saved by grace. But Paul is saying to Titus, keep your eye on the hope, the certain hope, the grace of God is going to appear again at Jesus' second coming. He is coming back. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. At Jesus' first coming, grace came to take our sins away. That's pretty good. At the second coming, grace is coming 
to remove us from all sin. That's even better. He's coming back again. And when he does, we'll be taken with him where there is no sin ever. There is no sin presence whatsoever. So it's pretty easy for me to agree with Paul when he calls this the glorious appearing of our blessed hope, Jesus. Amen. We'll close right there. I encourage you to, there's so much in such a little tiny book. I encourage you to read it. I encourage you, if you growing up, so many of us do, in homes where there's lots of rules and not a lot of love sometimes, or we've come from churches where we're influenced by a lot of legalism, you got to do this, 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 this. You know, good deeds are important. Good works are important. Paul is making that clear. But not if it's adding to the requirement of salvation. It's by grace. You're loved by grace. If, if that one seems too obvious to fool you, some people will use all of those rules and regulations and good works to determine how much God loves you. That's just as big a lie. He loves you. He loves you. That's a grace gift from God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we, I thank you so much, more than words can express, for your grace. That while we were sinners, you saved us. You sent Jesus, your son, sinless sacrifice to die on our behalf. And by grace, there's this invitation to come, to come to Christ. And even by grace, you allowed me to accept the gift. And each one here that's accepted that gift, it's by grace. And Lord, that as we continue to walk out our lives here on earth, Your grace is at work in us. We have been transformed, but we are being transformed. We are a new creature in Christ, but we're becoming Christ-like as the Holy Spirit works in each one of us. Lord, I pray you would give us ears to hear, hearts to be open to what the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to us and teach us. And I pray that that grace would abound in each one of our lives as we endeavor to follow your Holy Spirit's leading. I pray now, Lord, as we go different directions, that you watch over us, that you protect us, keep us safe. Lord, I continue to pray for each one of us to have those divine moments, divine opportunities to share the love of Jesus, to share the grace that you've given us in a world that's starving for it looking for it, that we may be carriers of your love, vessels that would pour out. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.